0: Open your Bibles to Romans 16.1. I know it's early, but uh, we're going to do a little bit of work today in Romans. Y'all ready for that? This uh, technically begins the last chapter of Romans, although Pastor Steve gave you a preview of what's right in the middle. And um, some of you have been practicing your holy kissing, and that's fine it's fine. It's the 815 service. I can say whatever, and you guys would be like, oh, church is great. Uh, Romans chapter 16. Here's what's going to happen today. Uh, Paul is, um, he, he's, he's unloaded an entire, um, we call it an epistle. It's a letter written by an apostle. It's called an epistle, and so he's unloaded this entire like apostolic letter towards the Christians living in Rome, and he follows a... Um, convention at the end of the letter that is pretty typical to letters that would have been written during this time period. And he what he does is he lists um, like 26 names in the book of Romans. Uh, 26 names for the church of Rome. That's what I mean to say, in the church of Rome. And I'm not going to go through every name today. Everybody say amen. Although it would be, it's a fascinating read. I read chapters after chapters after chapters in commentaries this past week, that blew my mind, uh, the Christians who are living in Rome. We're going to highlight just a couple of them today. But, but here's what it's like to me. Uh, I was watching in the middle of like, uh, you know, when nothing was on TV and no like Hollywood hadn't released anything in the longest time, there came this, this, this movie on Netflix called The Dig. And it was this, um, this, this movie about like the, the um, oh goodness, I'm blanking the name of the thing. The, uh, the Sutton Hoo Ship, that's what it's called good night. Uh, right before uh, th- there was this dig of this, this woman's property, who uh, she had ancient burial grounds on her property. They didn't know from how long. She thought maybe like the 1400s. And so she hired, this is a true story, she hired somebody to come out and excavate the property, a guy named Basil Brown. And a uh, very good Suffolk name. And, uh, and so, so what he did, with, with painstaking care, he removed bit of dirt after dirt and uncovered this incredible, like seventh, eighth century Anglo-Saxon king's burial chambers, and and this is a bit to me like Romans sixteen. The the dig is a little bit tedious. The dig could be a little bit wandering. It might feel a little obscure, but at the end there's gold. Okay. At the end of this, there is something that really reframes and shapes for us really a compassionate heart that Paul had for those whom he served with and who were of the body of Christ and who uh, he loved as well. Um, Romans uh, 16, 1 through 15 is a list that starts out with three people who we know actually quite a bit about, and as the list continues, so does their obscurity. Thankfully, I think the net effect of this chapter is not insignificant, but rather very significant. And here's how chapter 16 lays out in my mind, and maybe you can adopt this as your, you know, your, your overarching theme for this as well. But uh, first, Paul gives us a woman to receive. Then he gives us Christians to greet. And verse seven, 16 is a kiss to give. And then verse 17, and later, are people to avoid. That's kind of how I see this chapter unfolding a woman to receive. Christians to greet, a kiss to give, people to avoid. We're just going to cover the first two of those things today. So um, thank you, Dan, for praying with us. Thank you, Daniel, for leading us in worship today. And um, I guess I'm the third Dan to do something in the service today. And we're going to dig into God's word. Look with me. I want you, you had your Bibles open. Let's look together at Romans 16, verses 1 and 2. Paul says this. We're going to start with an important woman named Phoebe. He says, I commend to you, our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sentriki. I can never say it. I'll give you a dollar if you can too. So that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of myself, of many, and myself as well. All right. If you're taking notes, which I hope you are today, um, a couple of really important words here for for Phoebe. There's four words that I want to pull out, two of them cultural, two of them uh, sort of more churchy. The first is the word commend commend if you've got a copy of god's word you can highlight just highlight commend the second word is um, sister or sister that's another word uh, third word is servant servant of the church and then he says welcome her in a christ-like way that kind of echoes back to romans fifteen seven. therefore is welcome one another as god in christ is welcome to you and he says help her in whatever she may need from you for she has been a, and this is the fourth word here a patron a patron of m- of many and of myself as well so there's my there's four words we got to understand about Phoebe. If we understand those words, we can put a lot together about who this woman was. Uh, commend, sister, servant, patron. So let me just unpack that for you first. Commend, she is commended by Paul, and <clears throat> to our maybe 2021 20, ears, that sounds like um, you know a ringing endorsement, like a compliment, like uh, splendid job, Phoebe, you've done well. I don't know why it goes British, but it does. Commend, right? I commend you. And um, that's not at all how the Christians in Rome would have understood Paul's meaning. Back in these times, there were um, no passports, like the things that allow you to get in from one country to another. Um, There were no hotels or aids for travelers along the way, along the road. Um, Instead, if you were going on a trip, you knew that uh, someone lived in a town who was a mutual friend of someone else that you knew, and, and they could help you along your journey, what you would do is you would get a letter of commendation from someone who was well-respected. You would show this letter of commendation to the people upon your arrival. It would act as your, like, you know, papers, as a lack of, you know, a better term. And it would provide for you lodging and food and whatever your needs might be. This was a very ancient practice, very common in the first century, especially in Rome. Um, The thing about a letter of commendation is the higher the authority writing the letter, the more access you received. I think this actually happens today. I I, I learned um, that even in Boy Scouts today, there's a practice of requesting letters of commendation, even today. Uh, for a scout to earn the rank of Eagle Scout or, you know, to continue on, I'm told they need a letter of commendation from certain different people. And on the Boy Scout of America webpage, I went on it this week to just kind of check and see how they do this. There are links to people that they suggest that you as an aspiring Eagle Scout might talk to to get a letter of commendation. Do you know who the first person on the list is? The President of the United States. If you get the president of the United States to write you a letter of commendation, do you think you'll be accepted to be a candidate for Eagle Scout? Right, yeah. You No, you will. I don't care what your politics are. This kid's got friends in high places. Yeah, so so this is the same with Phoebe, right? She's taking a trip to Rome. Paul is writing to Romans. Almost every scholar that I read this week suggests that Paul would have rolled up this precious letter of Romans put it into Phoebe's hands, gave it to her to bring to the Christians in Rome, and as such, she would have presented this letter. Some scholars insist that she read this letter aloud to the different house churches. Others aren't so sure. But if she read it aloud, and others are you know, getting to this part of Romans, I imagine her reading this out loud saying, I commend to you our sister Phoebe. And someone in the crowd saying, well, that can't be right. Like, You can't put yourself in the letter. And they grab the letter away from her, and they look at it, and they, she goes, no, it's right here. Paul said my name right here. And they go, oh, wow. wow. Hey, Priscilla and Aquila, you guys are next. Well, okay, keep going, Phoebe. See, here's the point. Paul sent Phoebe with great authority as well as great responsibility. She was a sister to be received. What an honor for an apostle to commend you. That's the second word to sister. Of course, Paul is using this word in the same way that you and I would use this word today. When, when um, I see some of you, I say, how are you doing, sister? And, and you're not blood related to me, but you're family related to me by faith. Her faith in Christ had created a sibling relationship like a relationship amongst other believers too. She is our sister. You see that in there? It says, I commend to you our sister, Phoebe. She belongs to us. The third word is servant. Servant. This could get really incredibly detailed here. There's a word... Uh, a world of debate on this one specific word in this specific verse. So um, we could talk later if you want to. But the word Paul uses here is the same word for which we get the name deacon. Deacon. In its base form, deacon means someone who serves or, or actually technically buses tables. Luke's account Uh, Of Mary and Martha in Luke chapter 10, Martha complains to Jesus that Mary has left me to do all of the deaconing alone, the serving all alone. Um, And then Luke in Acts chapter 6 verse 12, or verse 2, I'm sorry, tells us the, the apostles of the church, the 12 disciples, they make the statement, it is not right for us to give up the preaching of the word and serve tables and deacon. Paul uses the word in Romans chapter 15, verse 8, of Jesus, who became a servant, a deacon to the Jews, to show of God's truthfulness. Um, and Paul uses the word again in, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, but he changes the word from, from someone who is a servant to a noun itself, which we interpret to say that that deacon becomes an office in the church. This is just a little bit of like theological history for you. Maybe um, one day we'll dive into this a little deeper, but here's what I want to emphasize. When Paul describes Phoebe as a servant of the church, and I wanted to highlight those specific verses to show you the good company that Phoebe is in as a servant in the church. At the minimum, what it means is that she isn't sitting on the sidelines watching ministry happen. She is in the mix, using her spiritual gifts to point people to Jesus. This is... (laughs) what she has done as a servant of the church. We see Paul identifying a woman who was busy at work loving the people in her Christian family, and he said, Phoebe, you could be of help to me as I spend my life on the mission of preaching the gospel. He commends her, he says, she is someone who has been in the mix in the fight with us. And finally, he um, says this, you should receive her, give her whatever she may need from you. She's been a patron of many and of many uh, of myself as well what is that word patron again this is a cultural world i, I don't want to um bore you with the details but uh, in the greco-roman world it operated on a system of honor of benefaction and of patronage there was this expectation that you would reciprocate to whomever had done good to you although you would do this subtly so if someone invited you over to your house for dinner and uh they cooked you a really nice meal Um, It would be impolite for you back in this day to try and pay for the meal, but you would try and do your best to honor the person in the larger society because they had been someone who had done kindness to you. Um, It has a little bit of a ring of like what we have in the mafia today, like allegiances and um, paying your honor towards people who have done well for you. Paul says that she's been a patron of myself and many others. What does that mean? Patrons were those who took care of other people, but not just like, you know, someone who's running an inn, someone who took care of other people financially. The NIV uses the word supporter. She has been a supporter of many as well as myself. You kind of get the picture from Paul that Phoebe, if you were to go over to her house for some coffee and look at her refrigerator, there'd be like just chock full of magnets with people that she sent around the world to preach Jesus. This is the type of person that Phoebe is. She had given out of her own wealth and to many other people, helping Christians make the most of Jesus. Phoebe was making the most of her resources by investing in other people. It's out of uh, one of the incredible paradigms I see of how God builds a church is that he always uses men and women because we're a family. And, And so much gets chalked up to the Apostle Paul in this letter of Romans, but if we fail to realize that it was a wealthy, single woman who carried this letter to the first Christians who would then read it, we miss God's bigger activity in the, in the body of Christ, in the family of God. It, it makes me think of the ways that God's word has gone forward, teamed up in pairs of men and women in the past. In London, God connected Anne Hilliard to Charles Spurgeon to do great philanthropy and a minister to the community. When, within the church, God gave uh, Charles Spurgeon Mrs. Bartlett, a Sunday school teacher of whom Spurgeon often and famously quipped, he used to say this, my best deacon is a woman. That's, what, that's a direct quote from him. In Chicago, God used a woman named Emma Dyer to serve alongside D.L. Moody to build an institute. And in Gary, Indiana, God used a small army of women to scrape together the first endowment of money for a new church, which would then be called the Central Baptist Church. We are not only indebted to the ministry of the early Christians, but to the ways in which men and women called by God have gone to do whatever God would have them do. And say whatever God would have them say. And go wherever God would have them go. And pay whatever God would have them pay. So that people might hear about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So um, across all of our campuses today, as we think about Phoebe and, and the way that she has commended to us, we um, join in and, and, and say, thank you God for our beloved sisters here in this church right now who act like Phoebe today. We say amen, sisters, right? Isn't that what we do? Thank you, Tony. I believe the next services will redeem you. And Phoebe. All right, part two, here. Uh, Christians to greet, Christians to greet. Paul moves from a a woman to uh, receive to then moving to Christians to greet. And, And here's what's interesting about Paul is that you get the sense that all of these people are people that he knows in some capacity, but we know that it can't be true because he'd never been to Rome. Some of these people had been exiles earlier around in the ministry that he had been a part of. We'll see that with Priscilla Priscilla and Aquila. And then had gone back to maybe their summer homes in Rome. Um, But a lot of these people are people who had just word of mouth has spread. And Paul has heard about them through just the relationships that Christians had. And here's where we get to verse verse 3. Just when we look at at three of these. He says this, verse 3. Greet Prisca, that's a shorthand for Priscilla, and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risk their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church that meets in their house. Okay, so who's Priscilla and Aquila? Priscilla and Aquila are known to us because they are great friends of Paul. We meet them in Acts chapter 18. Paul also includes uh, them in his letter to Timothy in 1 Corinthians. And I love how Paul says, they risked their neck for me. Do you have someone in your life who's ever risked their neck for you? Got a few of them in my life. How they did this, we're not sure. Possibly they tried to spring him from prison or created a diversion one night when Paul was having to leave a town. Who knows? That's kind of just conjecture. But, but, But what we do know is that had it not been for their love for Christ and their assistance to Paul, Paul would have been less effective in his ministry. Priscilla and Aquila were successful. We know this because it took means to travel back then. And their Roman cottage was apparently large enough for people to gather with them on Sunday mornings for worship. This is the first house church that Paul mentions in this whole entire chapter. Depending on um, how you parse up this, there might be three house churches that he's talking to or as many as five house churches that he's talking to here. Why is that important? Well, only wealthy people could host a dozen or, you know, more than a dozen people in their homes. And our best understanding is that these homes held up to about 70 people at a time. They didn't know about 815 services back then, apparently. We, I think, have our own Priscilla's and Aquila's today in in our church, too. People who use their businesses as springboards for gospel ministry. People whose homes are used as shelters for other believers. People who use their relationships to share The gospel what's incredible to me about priscilla and aquila is not that they risk their necks for paul but every time you see them in the scripture it's priscilla and aquila like it's 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 that it's it's the two of them together they are a couple their marriage seems to have a unified passion to it that paul recognizes I think all married couples ought to learn from Priscilla and Aquila. Does your, does your marriage have at the center of it some unifying core principle that you and your spouse do ministry together? I'm not saying you got to do the same things together, but, but are you spending your lives working and serving for one another in the sake of the gospel? Are, are you willing to risk your necks for people that you love as a couple? What a great honor and privilege it is for, for them to be listed here. The last verse I want you to look at is scroll down to verse 13. Romans chapter 16, verse 13 says this. It's a a guy named Rufus. Uh, He says, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. I think the reason that I love Rufus is is, is a little bit because he, if you dig into the New Testament, you can kind of understand a lot about this guy. Um, If we go back to Mark chapter 15, when Jesus is carrying his cross on Good Friday, here's what Mark's gospel says. It says, they compelled a passerby. Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and, okay, Rufus, to carry his cross. Simon of Cyrene, he, he, he carries Jesus' cross from the city out to Golgotha. But it's noted by Mark that Simon is the father of Alexander and Rufus. And here's a question for you. Where did Mark write his gospel from? I'll tell you, he wrote it in Rome under the guidance of a guy named Peter. Mark is technically Peter's gospel. It would likely include the first, it'd be the first of the four gospels written. Why would Mark include Simon's kids in his account of Jesus taking the cross literally from the court to to the hill? Well, One very solid reason is that there was in Rome among the Roman Christians, Rufus himself. Imagine having an eyewitness to Jesus' crucifixion in your church. Like, this is the type of stuff that gives me confidence in my faith. It's it's one thing to believe the Bible. It's another thing to understand that the Bible is written up of people who actually saw these things happen. Rufus was there, and he said this happened. How, how, how often must he have been asked, hey, Rufus, tell me what happened to Jesus again? Like, did he really die? And what did you see? And to hear Rufus recount how Jesus actually died and how days later he actually rose. What do we learn about this quick list of Christians here? I got two lessons that I just want to present to us this morning. The first is this, we all serve together. That's the word I kind of want to put in your mind today is together. We all serve together. Paul lists 26 names, many of them people who are serving in the church, serving together. There's a tendency to highlight in the ministry of Paul in the early church, but but Romans 16 makes it clear that Paul was but just the front man for Jesus. Behind Paul were dozens of people and dozens of churches, and the strength of the church were the people who served one another. I think one of the tendencies in our churches today is to um, professionalize ministry, meaning that if we have a need, We hire a person, if their name could be Dan, that's even better. We put them on the payroll, and then since we pay them, we expect them to produce. And that's not an unrealistic expectation. In some sense, being a pastor means I must do ministry. Um, But how far would Paul have gone if he had to carry the letter that he wrote to the Roman church himself? We actually know that the only way that Paul gets into Rome is in handcuffs. Not able to smuggle in a letter at that point. What if Paul had to tend to the needs of the poor in Sancria? What if Paul had to be the one who gave up preaching to wait tables? No, we are a, the the, the word is body. And it, it was said in other places of scripture that we're a family. We all work together. I want to read to you the type of reply that I'm thinking about in ministry. It comes from the mouth of Spurgeon himself in the 1870s in London when, when he and Anne Hilliard had just opened up an orphanage. To hear the type of partnership, the type of service that, that I think this is describing. Here's what Charles Spurgeon said in a, in a statement to um, whatever the, the newspaper was at the time. Here's what he says When Mrs. Hilliard's "'Magnificent contributions were first announced "'in the newspapers. "'People said it had been given by a duchess. "'But I say no. "'It is given by a princess, "'one of the blood imperial, "'a daughter of the king of kings. "'She has given it in the most unostentatious manner, "'desiring that her name should not be known.'" And I and my friends have dragged her into the light today, contrary to her wishes. She is a simple, earnest Christian woman who has devoted by far the largest portion of her property to God without asking honor from anyone. She only asks to help to this great work. I hope to see not 200, but 2,000 boys in the orphanage and ask all those who now hear to break through their Christian rule and give three cheers for Mrs. Hilliard. Why did I drag that out of the newspapers? It's because when we all serve together, some people take the spotlight and most people serve behind the scenes. And how appropriate it is for those in the spotlight to constantly be dragging people from behind the scenes into the spotlight, though they hate it, and for people behind the scenes to be doing work that allows the light of Christ to continue. See, so your fr- your friends, your name may never be known, but your work is precious to the mission of the gospel. Whether you're at work even here within our church, that's, that's great. But, but if you're busy making meals for those who just suffered a loss or just birthed a child, it's even better. Whether you're caring for the orphan or the single parent, listen, there's no lone rangers in ministry. We all serve together which kind of brings me to my second and final application. It just illuminates a slogan that we've had here at HP for some time, but I think it's more true now than it is ever. Um, the, the slogan, we, we, we say it this way, more than a crowd, we're family. <laughs> I think uh, if, the, if the Roman Christians had a slogan and they could look into our wisdom here in 2021, they would rip that off from us. Don't you think that? They would say more than a crowd of names, we're a family. More than just a bunch of names that you're not going to name your kid in 2021. More than a bunch of names. We're, we're people who love each other and have been united by Christ. This list of people here that greets us in Romans 16, the list of people that they are to greet in the Roman church, it contains many crowds. There's um, the house church at Prisca and Aquila's. There's the house church in the family of Narcissus and the one at Aristobulus's as well as the house churches mentioned there in verses 14 and 15, if those are house churches. If you were to take these names apart etymologically, what you would find is that some of these names are Jewish names, but most of them are Gentile names. And of the Gentile names, only one was connected to royalty that I'm aware of. It's a guy named Narcissus. He was connected to the Emperor Claudius, and when the Emperor Claudius committed suicide, he also died. Who are the rest of these people? the vast majority of the people named by Paul were actually former slaves of Rome. They were men and they were women. So what we see here is a vast portrait of the famous statement that Paul made in Galatians chapter three, verse 28. It says this, that there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor, nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. I've said this before, but it bears repeating. Where else in the world can you find a group of such diverse backgrounds coming together except for in the church of Jesus? I mean, where else in the world can you find people of every ethnicity who worship the same God? Where else in the world can you find men and women devoting their lives to the same cause? Where else in the world can you find the slave and the freedman coming together to worship together? What I I long for in our campus is that we would learn not to divide over our backgrounds or our views on the emperor or our education or our trades. For us, things like where we went to school or if we went to school or what side of I-65 you grew up on or what side of Route 30 you live on or, you know, you used to have a little, but now you got a lot. That was a Jenny from the block reference, by the way. I think none of that matters here except that you are our brother and sister in Christ. This crowd on a Sunday might ebb and flow in these coming weeks and months. I'm talking about here at HP, but whatever happens in our social opportunities— whatever, you know, COVID might get into our physical bloodstreams, it's powerless to disrupt the body that is held together by the blood of Jesus. Why did um, this campus have more people here last Sunday than ever before, even more people than in 2019 on Easter? By the way, we set a campus's record attendance last Sunday. yeah. You may not feel it here, and I'm so glad you guys are. But I, hey, listen, listen, true, true talk. I'm glad that you're here because you, you're helping us make space, okay? Thank you. Um, I don't know another church in America that had more people come to Easter this year than they had Easter in 2019, except for Bethel Church, Hobart Portage. And I got a lot of friends, y'all. But attendance is not engagement. What an honor it was for these people to be listed in the eternal record of Romans. Because not just did they attend the church, but they were the body of Christ. They were more than a crowd. They truly belong in the family of faith. I think um, if you're here, you have a place in this family. You have a place. We don't have a list like this, but um, you have a place in this list. So many of you uh, sacrifice time every single week to serve with, with our kids here. Some of you sacrifice time every single week to serve in a small group. Some of you have a freezer that's dedicated just to freezer meals for people in our church who need help. Some of you secretly give money to other people in this church and you do it anonymously and we can't even figure out who you are. Some of you have given of your resources, of your property. Some of you have cashed in stock options to give to the church. In this this community, here's what I want to say. The church is not the building. The church is not the slogans. The church is the people. And because of that, we're a family. In doing so, I think we show the light of of Christ to the world, what happens when people of all stripes put the Lord first in our lives. So let us serve one another in the work of the Lord. Here's what I want us to do just as a way to conclude our time together. Um, It's our rhythm here at our church to give to the needs of those who are uh, right now up against it. And on the first Sunday of the month, we give out of uh, abundance uh, to our benevolence fund. One of the things that made Phoebe a benefactor or a patron is that she gave out of her resources to those who needed help. I could waste a whole sermon on Phoebe. It would not be a waste, but um, it would be enlightening for us to see the type of help that she gave. She gave legal help. She gave food and rations. She provided cover and support when the authorities came to uh, to take Christians away. And for us as a church, we ought not just be people who have good... Wishes in our hearts towards others, but actually takes steps to do something for others. So, what I want to do is I'm just going to give you an opportunity right now to consider the example of Phoebe and to participate in giving to those who need our help right now. And uh, in just a couple of seconds, Daniel's going to pray over us and dismiss us, but I'd love for us as an act of worship right now, instead of just having it be something that we do in a service, but for us to intentionally connect our, our lives to this, to say, God, We're not just a crowd, we are a family. And we wanna use our resources to connect with others. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to pull out your phone and um, you can go online to bethelweborg slash give and whatever it is that you have available that the Lord could use, would you just give that? Just give that away. Just trust the Lord that he would use that in the building up of the church. That he would use that in, in the meeting of needs of people that you too might be a patron of someone that you might not even know. All this for God's glory. God's fame